Turb Alpern, the T1 of Brass, I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio in a more echoey room than usual. This is not the typical recording studio, mobile recording studio of Fangraphs Audio. It's slightly less, well, it's just as mobile, but less well-designed for sound. But who cares? Because guess what's happening? It's, uh, like I say, it's Fangraphs Audio. My guest in this edition of Fangraphs Audio is managing editor for Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And as he usually does on, uh, during his Monday appearances on Fangraphs Audio, what, uh, what Dave Cameron does is to analyze all baseball. So if you can think of a thing about baseball that um, merits analysis, then you can look forward on this edition of the podcast for that very thing to be analyzed. That's what we mean when we say that Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. Um, the listener might be interested to know that this week on Fangraphs, uh, the, in, within the electronic pages of Fangraphs, uh, Dave Cameron has uh, begun publishing the Trade Value Series, the very popular Trade Value Series uh, that he's – I guess he's been doing it since 2005. Since 2008, though, within the pages of Fangraphs. And um, what he uh, endeavors to do is to estimate the trade values of every player there is. And um, what he'll do is he'll share with you – the, the listenership slash readership, the top 50. So we look at those. Uh, we look at numbers 41 through 50, and then also uh, the players who just missed the cut. You could say, well, for one reason or another, uh, they were they are not among the top 50 uh, uh, players in terms of trade value, but they they're they're in the discussion, and that's what uh, that's another thing. Um, a second thing is that this is uh, that the podcast is beginning now. So let's. Let's get there. Oh, before I, before I, before we get to that though, allow me to announce June 18th. No, July 18th. July 18th in Chicago, Illinois, uh, at a place that I forget is, um, uh, there is a beer graphs slash fan graphs meetup at a place that I forget. But if you go, if you Google fan graphs and, uh, Chicago and beer graphs, then you'll find this. You'll find this. And Eno Saris is in charge of it, of course. But also, uh, I will be there, and Dane Perry will be there, and Michael Bates, who's also known as the Common Man, will be there. There are going to be um, there are going to be a lot of situ- a lot of people there. You can just you'll find it on the you go to fangrass.com. Right, that's announced. That's an event that's happening. That's been announced. Now let's get to the podcast featuring uh, uh, what was say it's Fangrass Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron analyzing all baseball, and it begins right now. Checking the levels here. Yeah. Figured you'd know. You'd want to know that. Uh, always do. Yep. Uh, well, you've been uh, duly informed. <laughs> um, you're you're not going to be at our uh, Fangraphs meetup. In Chicago, no. 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 There's beer involved. Why would I come? It's not really a draw for you, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I actually chastised you know for not inviting me, and then I and then I declined when he invited me. Yeah, you just wanted to be asked. I, I really I was uh, hurt and bitter, so yeah. I will not be attending. Yeah, well, bitter. Um, that's not really any. I mean, is that a departure from the norm or? <laughs> no, yeah, I think uh, yesterday someone uh, I don't I don't know if people saw this or not. I made a offhand remark during the futures game about how terrible Taiwan Walker's hair was because he has like this. Puffy, bleached, blonde, like 1990s boy band thing going on. Yeah. So I, I just made some joke about how he his hair was pretty terrible. Taiwan Walker uh, responded on Twitter 
not not super thrilled with my comment about his hair, which then led to a lot of people who follow Taiwan Walker uh, calling me all kinds of names. Oh wow! Yeah, I guess you have to watch out with your uh, with your status now, Dave. I, I have to imagine I, I I was a little surprised that Taiwan Walker follows me. You didn't actually. I don't even know. I haven't looked to see if he does. Maybe someone just put attention. But I was I was not anticipating that Taiwan Walker was going to be. Uh, uh, following a guy from Fangraphs or seeing the commentary of a the standard. Well, right, but you of course you're a Mariners Mariners based one. I, someone might have even pointed it his way just in jest, and uh, he took yes, it. Yes, right. It, it's possible that someone decided to stir up something. But yes, uh, so to your original comment about me being bitter, there are a lot of people who uh, <laughs> were telling Taiwan Walker that this is just my permanent state, and I think someone said that my sole existence is to bring people down. Yeah. I would say I would say there's a there's a, a bit of a difference bet, uh, between the way um, you conduct yourself in your public life relative to your private life. Would you? Well, are you around me in my private life? Well, no, I mean, I have been sometimes. I, I think that right. we've spent moments together that would not be considered your private life. I mean, you're very sweet. I think you're very sweet generally. So <laughs> you're saying publicly I'm terrible? No, no, I'm not saying that. But you could be a little uh, a little terse, a little a little. Quick with people. <laughs> yeah, I, I have uh, expressed strong opinions which people have not always agreed with or liked the tone. Yeah, and they like uh, to remind you. That, they like to remind yeah. you of them as well. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I think I'm a fairly nice person. Not everyone who has read nice things over the life of the internet has agreed with that. Yeah. No, actually, listen. It's a you. You brought up to, this is a this is a flawless segue that's occurring <laughs> right now. Is a, you brought up Taiwan Walker. And I was actually going to ask you about Taiwan Walker. What, um, and this is something uh, – this is a matter which I think will also lend itself to discussion of the trade value series, which is coming out. Um, because part of the trade value series, especially for younger players, um, and you bring it up in particular with regard to younger hitters, who um, it, it would seem uh, – reason would dictate are likely to improve. I mean, certainly – Empirical data suggests that younger hitters improve until age 27 or 30 or something, somewhere around there. Um, with regard to Taiwan Walker, who's 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 sort of um, added to his excellent, um, I guess, scouting reports now with excellent performance at AAA. I think is that right? Yep. Yeah, uh, he's having a great season. Um, during that during that uh, the futures game yesterday. There was some mention that he has gained some weight since last year. Yeah. Uh, maybe somewhere in the vicinity of 20 pounds. Yeah, I mean, whether that's exactly true or not, who knows. But he's filled out a little bit. And I think that was one of the reasons scouts always liked him, as he was you know, tall and lean, and he looked like he had some uh, ability to, to gain weight and to get a little stronger, and he started to do that. Right, so here's a question I have. And perhaps you're not the exact guy, but I'm interested because you're sort of, you know, you, you're familiar with this, this conversation, I'm sure. And that is just, uh, the idea of being able to project body types at some yeah. level. You, right. you mentioned scouts uh, were excited about Taiwan Walker's body because he was rather lean and therefore could fill out. At the same time, uh, we have there was another player in the Futures game, um, uh, Henry um, – recent Cuban uh, immigrant. Arutia. Arutia. Arutia, right. Henry Uterutia, yeah. who, yeah. uh, who seems uh, – I mean, he's exciting for some reasons in that um, – you know, we don't know that much about him. He's certainly holding his own both a double A and triple A. He's also 26. So when you look at well, Rudy, he's a Cuban 26. Right. Okay. Right. So the the point is that he's also very slender. Right. And you might say if he were 20 years old, you'd say this is someone who could theoretically fill out. 
But he's 26. Right. He's not really going to get a lot bigger probably. And so I'm right. curious – um, and you also, I'm also reminded about uh, Alexi Ramirez, for example, when I see him. Um, because you say, well, Alexi Ramirez is older now and he is still very slight of build. Uh, how, what do we know about being able to look at a player or you know, being able to measure his BMI and then project into the future what he will be physically? Yeah, I mean, I think like scouts who have been doing this for a very long time are probably better than uh, stat geeks on the Internet who calculate FIP and MOBA. So I think there probably are people who uh, have some expertise in this area and can look at a player based on his shoulder width or whatever it is, the, the personality uh, of their body and say, this looks like a guy who can sustain 30 pounds uh, and, you know, maybe he's a corner player who's, a, you know, he's got some loft with swing. It would make sense for him to bulk up as he gets older. I think with guys like Alexi Ramirez, it's a little bit of a choice, right? Like, we probably believe that Alexi Ramirez could put on 20 pounds if he really wanted to, but it would make him a worse defensive shortstop, and he's probably not going to hit for uh, significantly more power, even if he puts 20 pounds under his frame, so it would make him a worse player overall. So I think part of it probably goes along with the player's skills. If you say, you know, you have a power-hitting right fielder, uh, swings to the moon, just needs to get stronger so that his doubles go over the wall. I think, you know, maybe a Manny Machado might be an, an interesting example of this is a, you know, a very athletic, uh, elite defensive third baseman who could probably still play shortstop. Does it make sense for this guy who's, you know, 6'3", six, 6'4", six, to put on a bunch of weight, lose some agility, uh, become a, maybe a stronger hitter who turns some of his doubles into home runs, but at the same time lose his defensive value? Or does he stay slender and lean and, uh, be more of a, a double hitter with great defense. I think it'll be interesting to see which way he goes. Well, so one of the points that you you make during the course of your uh, trade value series against again, which is uh, which is just you you, re, you reviewed it at the end of last week. Uh, you've started it this week. You've started first of all uh, with players who just missed the cut. Um, you also now have moved on to uh, you know uh, you'll have today by the end of today you'll have the top um, you'll have the, the first ten players essentially. Um, and you said that what teams are probably becoming more aware of and will continue to do so um, if they're not necessarily totally yet is um, this idea of of a more gradual um, understanding or an understanding of players sort of gradually progressing along the defensive spectrum, right, where we don't have um, such um, established ideas of the difference between a corner and center fielder. Um, and I forget which player in particular you were discussing, but the, the idea is that players have a certain defensive ability and there's not necessarily either a corner outfielder or a center fielder or maybe the, you know, the, a third baseman as like a power hitting uh, sort of more um, stationary sort versus a second baseman who's lithe and athletic. There's, the, the differences are more slight perhaps. Yeah, basically I was talking about uh, Alex Gordon, Freddie Freeman, and Kyle Seeger in the, talking about why they didn't make the cut, even though they're good young players, uh, you know, certainly valuable pieces to their teams, but all three play corner positions and they don't hit for a ton of home runs. I think uh, Freddie Freeman has nine, Alex Gordon has, I don't know, from seven or something. Kyle Seeger's actually got 15, but this is a, a surprising uh, power outburst for him. Uh, might have something to do with Safeco's fences being moved in this year, so. Um, but I think scouts still don't project Seager to be, you know, maybe more than a 20, 25 home run guy in his prime. Uh, you know, he's 5'11", he's, he's not really large. So you don't look at Kyle Seager and think that this guy who's going to hit a lot of home runs. So I think all three of them kind of don't really fit the profile of their position. Uh, and I think that does currently hurt their trade value, where teams are going to go say, hey, you know, I want a first baseman, 
and then, you know, they're going to Freddie Freeman and say, well, yeah, I like the 300 batting average. I like the walks. I, I, maybe I like the defense, but I don't believe in the sense metrics that aren't a big fan of him. Uh, but they're not going to love the power. And they, I think, you know, some young first baseman never developed power. We saw James Loney for years was, you know, a doubled guy who was going to develop power. The swing was really nice, and he just never did. And, uh, you know, Casey Kochman, John Olerud, Mark Grayson, a long line of first basemen who came up, didn't hit for any power, never hit for any power. I think in Freeman's case and, and in Alice Gordon's case, they're playing positions where scouts really expect more home runs. So even though they're good players, uh, I think that's going to diminish their trade value just because of the way they go about accumulating the value. Right. So it should be stated that, uh, and I think you're making this clear, that when you're discussing trade value, you're trying to assess it based on what a, a team could get, uh, for example, um, for Alex Gordon or Freddie Freeman in the market as it exists today. Right. This is not some hypothetical, if every GM understood value uh, and every team had perfect information. And this is basically a reading of the market. So right now we know the market pays more for power than it does for defense. So players of equal value uh, one who gets their value from power, one who gets their value from defense, the one who gets their value from power will be ranked higher simply because this is what the market places a premium on. This is how teams uh, kind of have, you, you might call it a bias, or you might call it wisdom, depending on what you think of our ability to evaluate defense or their ability to evaluate defense. Uh, I think what we can see is, you know, uh, number one starting pitchers, the elite guys, really there's a, there's a market for them. And then once you get into the middle rotation starters, uh, there's a big group of them that are all kind of similar and, and the market really falls off. So pitchers are not valued linearly. linearly. Uh, defense isn't valued as much as power. Uh, you know, speed guys who strike out a lot uh, are going to be undervalued most likely even if they're productive because teams don't really like little guys who, who don't make a lot of contact. So I think there's player types that are going to factor into this. It's not just all about production and cost. Right. So here's a question going back to the idea of body type, right? Um, you, you were sort of talking about a choice that maybe exists for the players or maybe it's just a function of getting older. And, uh, you know, I, I'm well aware that uh, as I've gotten older, my body retains weight um, or calories more than it used to. Um, but uh, I wonder if this is what makes a player like, for example, Troy Tulowitzki uh, very valuable or a player like Mike Trout, although maybe Mike Trout's body type is a, is a totally different question. Um, but Tulowitzki is someone who is able to play shortstop, I would say, at a, at a slightly above average uh, way, while also possessing the sort of uh, physicality that allows him to hit for power. Um, I mean, certainly he's aided by Colorado, but I think that even in a vacuum, he would still be, you know, a 21, uh, 20 home run hitter, uh, considerably above average offensive player. Like, you know, Tulowitzki um, is someone who's He's certainly not the slightest uh, of shortstops. So I'm wondering if, like, if you're able to find a player like that, is that he's sort of at the crossroads there of of physicality and athleticism? Right. I mean, I think this is kind of exactly what scouts are dreaming of, of finding a, uh, you know, sometimes they call them fast-twitch athletes, uh, guys whose bodies are very athletic despite being large. And I think, you know, in the NBA, you see, like, Shaquille O'Neal's, Seven foot two, three hundred pounds, but he moved really well, and he was able to destroy other big men in the post because of how much more athletic he was. He wasn't bigger than them; he was just faster than them. And so, I think that's kind of the idea: of if you can find a big guy who's also athletic enough to play an up the middle position, you can have a really large advantage because you're getting corner offense from a from a premium spot, and they're able to defend that position in a not embarrassing way. If you have a guy like Tulowitzki or 
Um, you know, even Mike Trout, who can, you know, be an above average defender and up the middle position, uh, then you have a superstar on your hands. And I think that's why, uh, the emphasis on physical tools in the scouting community exists because they're looking for players of this sort. Now, besides just scouts coming on it, it, it also seems as though this is something that science would be able to tell us. No, if you're able to sort of have an understanding of a player's body type, um, and then, you know, maybe beyond that, uh, consider, his diet, uh, you, you might be able to project to a certain degree what his physique would look like when he's 27 or 30 or 35, etc. Uh, do you have any not, any uh, awareness of this as something that's discussed in front offices, or you know, uh, or is it uh, is this sort of untapped territory, so far as you know? Yeah, I would imagine the team are doing this kind of research. They're certainly not sharing it with the public, uh, but I think you know it's also difficult to do this kind of stuff because we don't have. No one's been tracking uh, 19-year-olds' diets while they're in the minor leagues for the last 20 years. We don't have this database of, uh, you know, we don't have a control group where we're like, okay, we have all these skinny 19-year-olds, we fed them Pop-Tarts, and this is what they look like. And then we have all these 19-year-olds, we fed granola, and this is what they look like. I mean, there's a, you know, moral issue here with uh, treating players differently. And so you kind of have to give everyone the best nutrition, and there, there isn't long-term data on, uh, you know, kind of what players have been eating over the last, you know, 20, 30 years like we have in baseball or going back hundreds of years uh, with some parts of the data. So I think it's tricky. You have smaller uh, samples to deal with. A lot of times teams probably only have this kind of information on their own players. Um, but I'm sure they're they're looking at it and trying to figure out if they can forecast players' future development from kind of the ways they develop physically in, in their early stage and in the minor leagues. But it's not an easy net to crack. Well, and actually, to the point of nutrition, um, again, with watching the Futures game yesterday, I noticed that after Billy Hamilton scored at one point, um, he came, you know, he had to run around the bases, and even, you know, despite the fact that he's quite fast, he had uh, he had run hard. Uh, he decided to come back to the dugout and uh, seek um, some hydration, and then the camera panned to him, and he was just, um, he was drinking uh, with some vigor uh, from a from a can of Mountain Dew. <laughs> um, which which does not strike me as the uh, the best way for for an athlete to hydrate himself. Yeah, it's, um, you, know, you never know with the futures game. That might have been product placement, right? Like Mountain Dew <laughs> might have paid a substantial amount of money to have Billy Hamilton drink their product on TV. Uh, yeah, well, I guess credit to him because he's probably not making a lot at the minor league. So if that is the case, then go for it. But it, I I would think that even that a coaching staff that this is not the beverage that they want their players choosing. Although he's, if he's so slight a build, he can afford to put some on, I know. Right, yeah. I would imagine that, you know, caffeinated drinks are probably not the the, the number one choice of organizations for their prospects to drink. But I think at the same time, organizations historically have not done a very good job of this. I mean, you know, like a minor league player will get a per diem, uh, you know, for food each day when they're on the road and, you know, whatever, $25 or $50 or something. Not a lot of money when you're trying to get through two or three meals. Uh, and most of these players end up... Uh, having a lot more fast food than they should. You know, the catered meals in the clubhouses are generally uh, not that nutritious. And I think there's no question that there's a, a large opportunity for advancement in, in nutrition of younger players. Okay. All right, well, let's talk about uh, some of the players that just that just missed your, your trade value series. Uh, you, you said something interesting, um, and this is because I think you had a, a group of players um, who you expected to uh, – Continue to improve offensively, right? Uh, this was uh, a group you referred to as uh, infielders. What was it? Uh, infielders who may or may not hit. 
Right, infielders who may or may not hit. And uh, Laurie's there. I mean, Matt Carpenter is having a, at least has had a great deal of success this year already, uh, is on yeah. that list. Uh, because we don't know necessarily about his future. Uh, there's some other players. There's some players there who are having very good seasons this year, but do not necessarily have a huge, uh, uh, do not necessarily have a, a great deal of offensive success on their resume. Uh, and then there are other players like Brett Laurie who have hit in the past, uh, but are not doing that now. One thing you bring up, and I and I think it's a really a pretty interesting point, is um, you say there's a reason that hitters are the hardest things to scout because there are a lot of things about hitting that aren't physical and only become apparent with experience. Now, when you read scattered reports of hitters, you'll talk, you'll see questions about load. Uh, you, you know, you'll see a discussion of players clearing their hips, etc. Is, is this, despite that, is is this only sort of a, a fraction of, uh, of what we can ultimately know about hitters? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think you can certainly scout a player's swing, his bat speed, his physicality. I mean, there are certainly things you can see from watching a player, uh, you know, just based on, you know, swing plane and size. You can look at Juan Pierre and say, this guy's never going to be a home run hitter. Uh, you know, there's things that we can determine in a fairly short amount of time uh, based on uh, a hitter's uh, skills in a small sample size. But I think there are, you know, Matt Carpenter is a great example of this. You know, this was a, a college senior signed for $1,000 after a 13th-round draft choice because uh, Scout saw a guy in college who hit flat foot and had no power and was never going to have any power, and he you know, not a very big guy. Uh, so the Cardinals basically got him for nothing, got him into their system. They're the prospect development machine. They fix everybody, and they turn marginal prospects into superstars. Somehow they got Matt Carpenter to start hitting for power. They kind of changed his, uh, his mechanics, improved the, the physical aspects. Some of them there were things about Matt Carpenter that were very difficult to see coming in terms of his play discipline and the pitches that he chooses to swing at, the ability to uh, hit for power to, or at least gap power to all fields. Carpenter's a guy who I think, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no way to see this coming. This isn't every scout in baseball is an idiot and just missed this guy. He's just a very different player now than he was five or six years ago when the Cardinals signed him, or even two or three years ago when he was considered a, a fringy utility infield prospect uh, who might draw walks but couldn't really do anything else. Uh, you know, I think when you see guys like that who make massive changes to their uh, overall performance ability, it's just not fair to expect scouts to expect this or to be able to predict it. You just have to say this is the kind of thing that we can see in retrospect, but you can't really predict going forward. Right. Well, I mean, for every Matt Carpenter, I mean, how many players do you suppose there are that, that met his description uh, as a, you know, a draft-eligible senior and, have, you know, have not become Matt Carpenter? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Matt Carpenter is the exception. That's why we're talking about him. But I think my general point about those guys on the list is that when you see a guy uh, like, you know, a, a part of the, the genesis of that discussion was the, you know, kind of crop of elite defensive shortstops who all have some interesting offensive profiles or uh, at least success in small family. Like Jose Iglesias, Didi Gregorius, uh, last year, Fetus Escobar, uh, Brandon Crawford, these guys are superlative defenders, some of the best defensive players in the game. All they really need to do is not be terrible hitters, to be really good players, mm-hmm. I mean, to be basically all-stars. But looking at them, it's really difficult to figure out if these guys are going to hit or not. I mean, they're all kind of slender. They are, none of them hit pretty power, really. Uh, they're contact hitters uh, who mostly are too aggressive and uh, don't control the strike zone all that well, don't draw a ton of walks. They're, they're not going to be offensive forces, 
But there are certainly development steps that they could make to turn themselves into, you know, a league average or maybe slightly above league average hitter, at which point they're a superstar. Uh, looking at them right now, I don't think even the most trained, seasoned baseball executive could look at these guys, look at these three or four, five young shortstops and say, this one's going to hit and this one's not. Uh, of that group, one of them probably is going to hit and have a really nice career and, and it'll be a perennial all-star. I just don't know that we can look at them right now and know because the differences between what they are right now and what they could be are based on uh, mental things and adjustments that we just can't see from afar. But is it, So is your sense that, that one of them could be a superstar? Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, next year we look back and be like, how did I not put Didi Gregorius in the top 50? Or, you know, why was Jose Iglesias uh, under, underranked? Uh, what did we miss? How was this not obvious? Uh, and we'll just look back and be like, well, you know, they were hitting at the time, but we weren't sure they were going to keep hitting, but they have kept hitting, and now all of a sudden they're a six-win player. All right, okay, all right. So, yeah, so that's that's how that happens then. Um, another, another uh, so we talked about two types, uh, the underpowered corners. Uh, we also talked about infielders that may hit. And then, uh, well, there, there are a couple of other issues, but um, <clears throat> one of them is just is pitchers, right? Yeah. Uh, pitchers. And so the difficulty with pitchers is that they tend not to fade uh, especially the younger ones, they tend not to fade, uh, but they they get injured. Yeah. And so therefore, the you know the potential highs are still rather high, uh, but the lows are zero. I mean, not not to yeah. say that you know not to say there's no risk associated with position players, but uh, in arm injuries create serious problems. Yeah, I think when I was looking back and linking the, like, the original trade value post I did back in 2005, the very first name that I ever wrote in a trade value series was Daniel Cabrera. He ranked number 40 in 2005 because uh, he was a, you know, whatever, 24-year-old kid who threw 98 with a power sinker and got strikeouts and, you know, looked like a pretty good pitcher. Daniel Cabrera uh, was a disastrous flameout. Uh, never did, had any kind of major league career. This is kind of what you're looking at with pitchers is the risk is so high that you're really looking at guys who could be awesome or terrible, uh, and, you know, or anything in between, really, and knowing which ones are going to stay healthy or develop. Uh, you know, even as we talk about Taiwan Walker, Taiwan Walker looks fantastic. But a year ago, Trevor Bauer looked really fantastic. And a year, you know, right now he's uh, nowhere near a good major league pitcher. Uh, even the best pitching prospects, you look back from a couple of years ago, I, I generally look over Baseball America's prospect lists and just try to make sure I'm not missing any obviously superlative talents when I'm putting these together and there's not someone to slip through the cracks. And just like from even two and three years ago, seeing these very well-regarded arms who were considered to be close to the major leagues who never amounted to anything, you just realize there's so much about pitching and predicting pitching that we just don't know. Well, let's talk about. Uh, you mentioned using the, uh, you know, the Baseball America prospect list. Uh, I'm sure Mark Hewlett's prospect list. Uh, of course, yeah. But uh, you know, Baseball America has a much more extensive archive. Right. Exactly. Right. Just to see. Right. For for reference sake. Um, yeah. I know, and I assume it's going up soon. That uh, you've picked uh, as the 44th most valuable player uh, in terms of the trade value, uh, Anthony Rendon, um, who's yeah. currently applying his trade. I I think as uh, Washington's second baseman. Correct. Now, Rendon is a player now who, um, well, you know, every player is going to have his sort of arc or rise through the minors. Um, he was known as an elite college hitter, uh, had some injury problems, uh, but I don't think his bat, I mean, to the, to the extent you can say um, his bat is not really a question mark uh, about any prospect, that has been the case, uh, uh, that has been the case with Rendon. 
Um, he's hitting he's hitting rather well uh, so far. He's hitting uh, over 20% above league average so far uh, this season. Mm, I'm wondering how you dealt with prospects um, or you know players like Anthony Rendon, maybe Gene Segura, who's also um, um, 40. He's going to be 42nd on your list. How you've dealt with them, uh, knowing that in some cases they have very little in the way of a major league resume. Yeah, I think these are the guys that are the trickiest, probably. I mean, there's a, you know, in that host of infielders, uh, you know, I put a bunch of, like, really talented young players on there who I think you could make a pretty good case for. I think you could make a case that Rendon is maybe part of that group of, you know, a guy who plays in now and up the middle position. We don't know how well he's going to play it or how long he's going to be able to play it, but, you know, the Nationals have, at least to this point, successfully turned him into a second baseman, and a second baseman can really hit. I mean, I think the questions about Rendon have always been about health and position, not about offensive ability. If he can stay at second base and stay healthy, he's going to be a force. Uh, but at the same time, we have about a month and a half of big league data from Anthony Rendon. Uh, the, the minor league data is really good. The college data is really good. The tools are really good. There's reasons to believe that Rendon is going to be an excellent player, which is why he ended up making the list. But all the same concerns I had about a lot of those infielders who didn't make the list I have with Rendon, uh, I just maybe have a little bit more confidence in his back than I do in some of the others. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think these guys are, are not easy to place. Segura is not an easy guy to place. Uh, you know, I certainly had some deja vu when I was putting him on the list. To, uh, you know, there's a little bit of Elfie de Fuscobar in there offensively. Segura has more power, but neither one walks. Uh, they're both high contact hitters. Uh, you know, Segura is probably not the defender that Escobar is, or at least by reputation anyway. Uh, so Segura is not going to be a plus 15 defender and they get a ton of value that way. He really needs to hit for power in order to kind of be Ian Desmond instead of, uh, you know, Alfie Escobar, and he could go either way. So uh, with some hesitation, Bagura made the list, but at the same time, shortstop is such a hole in Major League Baseball right now that I think if the Brewers actually put Bagura on the market, given his success, the fact that he's already an all-star, uh, you know, has proven some at this level, uh, has skills, was, a, you know, a, a premium prospect in the Angel system, I think there would be a pretty significant bidding war because of the fact that he's hitting right now. Have we ever have we ever seen that? Uh, you mentioned you know the Brewers in theory putting him up. Now the Brewers are not uh, contenders in the NL Central wild card, etc. Right. However, if you, if what you're suggesting is right, is that Gene Segura, given his offense this season, right, given and given the sort of way he's burst onto the scene, given the lack of um, offensively oriented shortstops, if the Brewers really felt that there was really n- that there was a uh, no possibility of Segura recreating this season, right? That this is the best he's ever going to be. Uh, he's got a bunch of team control left. He's he's very appealing to other teams, which is why he's on the top 50 list here. I, I, do, is there any sort of precedent for a team not in contention trading away a young player like that because they actually think that, uh, you know, he's at the peak of his value at the moment? Um. Probably. I wouldn't say it's comparable to, to Segura. Maybe the closest thing I can think of recently would be the Mariners trading Michael Pineda uh, after his outstanding rookie season. He had five years of team control left. Uh, it made the all-star team his rookie year, um, you know, starting the year 296. But, you know, he also had a history of arm problems, and then those arm problems reappeared when he went to New York, or new arm problems appeared, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, and, you know, I think it would be the difference between a pitcher and a shortstop, certainly. And, you know, the Mariners were trying to turn pitching into hitting. So, not an exactly comparable situation, but I think that there are is some uh, there are instances where teams decide, hey, you know, uh, this guy's a super valuable young player, but I'm going to cash him in for something else. 
because I might be a little low on his value. I think you can maybe make the argument that the Royals and this was Will Myers. Uh, was considered, you know, a top three prospect in all of baseball. I never really seemed all that interested in giving him the right field job. He was rumored to be a trade ship for quite a while. He couldn't even displace Jeff Francoeur uh, when Francoeur was among the worst players in baseball. It seemed like the Royals maybe uh, were less bullish about Myers than some other teams. Instead of turning him into, you know, other players to help them rebuild, they tried to win with James Shields. But I think maybe this is an example of a team finding a guy who a lot of other teams like with six years of team control uh, and, and trading him away um, maybe because they weren't quite as high on him as the Rays were. Do you have a sense, what's going on in right field right now for the Royals? Uh, David Luff is getting a lot of playing oh, okay. out there. And I think he's yeah. been—he's actually been decent, hasn't he? He's, he's been pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Uh, then, I mean, we don't know to what degree. I mean, to the point you've been making here, we don't know to what degree that's going to last, but probably better than Frank Gore. Is that also fair? Uh, you know, he's, it's not hard to be better than Jeff Frank Gore at this point. Yeah. Although, uh, Frank Gore is now playing for a team as well. Uh, Frank Gore signed with the Giants. Yeah, he's going to be the weak half of a platoon, and the, in, in Frank Gore's case, the very weak half of a platoon. <laughs> what, does Frank Gore still have skills against left? I mean, probably more than right-handed batters. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's not the worst player in the world of playing once or twice a week against lefties because he, you know, he does have a strong throwing arm and those defenses are probably overrated. Uh, and for whatever you, you know, you think chemistry might be worth, he's lauded as a great teammate and people love that being around the guy. I think the Giants got him to the pro-rated league minimum, so they're going to pay him on, you know, $200,000 for the rest of the year. Uh, it's not the end of the world that Jeff Frank Cooper on your bench. Uh, and playing once a week against lefties. The problem is, they're saying, you know, you have a hot streak and also you're starting every day. That becomes an issue. Right, and this seems to happen with some players. I, I know that this has uh, been a problem with the Pirates playing Brandon Inge of late, no? Yeah, I think, you know, Delvin Young could probably fall into this category, too. I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly players who uh, are career underachievers. I don't know if I would call Inge a career underachiever, but guys who have this reputation of, like, oh, if, the, if there's untapped upside there. If we just give them a chance, they'll turn into something. And also, they have a good 15 days in their everyday players for two months, and you have to wait for them to like, crash and burn to get them out of the lineup. Uh, I think that's kind of one of the traps of giving a roster spot to these guys. You're setting yourself up to be fooled. Right, 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 right. Um, now, let's talk about a different sort of player um, that you had to uh, that you had to include in this, and of course, this is this is very different than the uh, the prospect with you know fewer than 200 plate appearances, and that is the uh, players who are due uh, you know uh, tens of millions of dollars over five to ten years. I, I know that yeah. uh, I mean one of the most challenging ones I assume uh, would have had to have been Justin Verlander, who I think right. he, he said he signed through 2019. Yeah. Uh, um, to, not only that, uh, we know that he has an excellent uh, record um, in terms of, uh, you know, his last three to five years uh, uh, has been dominant. Uh, at the same time, his velocity is down this year. And to add to that, he's also still um, having success despite the fact that his velocity is down. So there are a great uh, a great many factors to consider, especially in light of another player like Anthony Rendon, who's, you know, comparatively at the very beginning of his career is very cheap and could provide value based on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, with, you know, the, the very expensive contracts these guys are tough. A few years ago when I really kind of started doing this list, these guys generally didn't make the list. Uh, usually my argument went something along the lines of when you're making that much money and you're close to market value, uh, you know, why would a team give up significant talent in order to get a market value or something close to market value contract when they could just go into the market, spend that money and get a you know, comparable amount of value 
uh, out, out of the free agent market without surrendering any of their talent. And I think, you know, I, I'm not necessarily retracting those arguments uh, from five years ago. I think they were true. I think what we've seen is the significant revenue flow uh, to teams of all sizes has led to this boom of contract extensions where basically any player worth his salt now is not making it to free agency. They're really the only guys who make it to free agency now are the late bloomers. Uh, Robinson Cano is going to be a, an exception this year. Uh, but I think what we're seeing is guys, you know, like Josh Hamilton, uh, you know, accrued a bunch of service time, uh, you know, when he was um, having all his off-the-field issues. And, uh, you know, there was, he was kind of a late bloomer in that regard. And because of his off-the-field issues, he didn't uh, get a chance to sign a, a contract when he was 23, and it took locked him up through age 32. Uh, so, you know, he kind of hit free agency a little bit later. Uh, I think those are the kind of guys who get to free agency now. If you're going to spend $150 million, or $200 million, whatever it is, you'd probably rather uh, trade for a, an elite player who team said, you know, this is a guy I want to keep. I don't see a lot of warning flags here. Uh, this is a guy I want to lock up, rather than taking that same money into free agency and getting the guys who are deemed to be a little bit too risky. I mean, Matt Swartz, who's uh, written for Pangrass about uh, other people's players, as he calls it, has noted that um, the return on contract extensions is far, far higher than the return on uh, signing a player from another team, and part of this is just selection bias. I mean, teams have more information uh, about their own players, and when it comes to extension time, they look at a guy who that they know has some health issues or off the field issues, and they say, "I don't want to find that guy." But if they're confident in his character, confident in his work ethic, confident in his health, they do sign him. And so you get two different classes of players. I think now that every team has significantly larger revenues than they did a few years ago, there's more of an appeal to trade for one of these guys who's been given a significant salary but is kind of selected into the, the more quality player uh, versus going into free agency and buying a player that some other team decided they didn't want to pay. Right. Now, on the flip side of that uh, is uh, Matt Kemp, we could say. Yeah, uh, right. Matt Kemp uh, was ranked rather highly. Uh, on yep. your edition of the trade, uh, trade Value Series last year, um, I think seventh, perhaps? Sixth or seventh? Seventh, seventh uh, yeah. Uh, he was ranked seventh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, he won't be appearing this year. He is not going to be on the list. He appeared in the morning's uh, guys who just missed the cut. I put him and Ryan Braun together. Braun was number six. Right. Uh, neither, neither of them will be on the list this year, and I think they kind of show the the risk of kind of going this way and, and moving some of these larger contract guys onto the list uh, is that it doesn't take a lot to nuke their trade value. I mean, if you're making $150, $200 million, uh, a little twinge or a DL stint or, you know, an elbow pain, all of a sudden you don't look nearly as attractive as you used to. Uh, there's a big risk in taking on that kind of contract and giving up significant talent. You're really putting all your eggs in one basket if you do that. So, you know, Verlander's a really interesting case because I think there's a perception that he's really struggled this year. Uh, his ERA is up in part because of the fact that defense is atrocious. But, uh, you know, his velocity is down, his strikeout rate's down a little bit. Uh, I think there is some reason to think that Verlander is not going to be as good in the future as he has been in the past. And so if you look at it and say, man, $28 million a year starting in 2015, uh, going through 2019 for Justin Verlander's decline phase, that could be pretty ugly. This could be, you know, Johan Santana or something where you're really paying for what he used to be, and you're paying a premium for it, maybe I don't want to give up significant talents. But at the same time, I think if you had a contender who was, uh, you know, trying to win this year and they said, you know, I can get maybe still the best pitcher in baseball, or one of the top three or four pitchers in baseball, only making $20 million next year, not going to bust my budget. Long term, I'm going to take a hit, certainly, 
Uh, but I think we've seen that teams are willing to take long-term hits. The Tigers did it with Prince Fielder. Uh, you know, the Reds probably did it with Joey Votto. Teams are willing to take uh, dead money five, ten years down the line in order to get really good elite players at solid contracts right now. You know, I was looking over uh, for the sake of the, just uh, inspecting the home run derby participants. Uh, Prince Fielder is not really um, – he's not hitting for as much hitting. power. Yeah. Right. Yeah, he's, he's not very good this year. Uh, yeah, and it actually seems like uh, you just look over it uh, – there might be some sort of regular decline to his, his power because he hit 50 home runs at one point. Yeah, I mean, I think early in his career he was a monster power hitter, and then, you know, over the last couple of years he's developed a little bit into, like, less of a power hitter, but a guy who makes a lot more contact. And so he's kind of refined his game, developed into a different kind of hitter than he was early in his career. But it, you do wonder if, uh, you know, this trade off is worth it. When you look at Prince Fielder, you know, I think this is a guy who should hit a lot of home runs. Uh, I think his ISO is in the 180 range or something. I noticed uh, this morning when I was playing around with the leaderboards, uh, Prince Fielder has the same uh, wins above replacement as Matt Adams, the Cardinals' backup first baseman. Yeah, that's, which, that's, yeah. that's never good. No, great, right. And of course, uh, part of that is that, you know, there's a defensive consideration there. and Right. Uh, Base running as well, which Fielder's also terrible at. Which he's not very good at. He's a hefty. Yeah. Hefty man. Um, anyway, yeah, d- uh, yeah. just uh, noticing that. It's one of those things. It, it really seems like, uh, given the sort of um, risks you've laid out here for all those sorts of players, that it makes sense never to sign a player or to have <laughs> a baseball team because they're all going to fall apart. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've learned from the trade value series. I think, you know, going in, and, you know, maybe as some people still have this perception, is that there are these, like, superstar players that are superstars forever, and we know they're going to be superstars, and they're mortal locks, and they've got, you know, franchise players that you build around. And then I look back and, like, you know, the guys we considered franchise players two years ago, and now they're terrible. And they're like, well, there's no such thing really as a mortal lock. Like, the best players in the game get hurt or become terrible overnight with no real explanation or reason. Uh, you know, maybe Matt Kemp's shoulder is the reason he hasn't been able to hit in, you know, a year and a half. But Matt Kemp was the best player in baseball a few years ago, and, like, the consensus guy that you, if you were going to start a franchise, this is the guy you'd do it. Right now he's replacement level. And, you know, like, injury could be a factor, certainly, but this also happens when guys don't have injuries. They just stop performing well, or, you know, sometimes they go the other way. Josh Donaldson was absolutely nothing, and now Josh Donaldson is excellent. Baseball, very hard to predict. Right, and... uh and it, well, even with regard to Pools, he's actually not terrible right at the moment, um, but he's he's uh, he's average, I guess. Is another thing that can happen, right? Is um, I mean, uh, you know, questions have been raised before about his age. Uh, it's, I'm not going to speak to that, but the point being that he, a guy can go from being excellent to to average, and that's still a, a little bit of a, of a problem if you've paid him. Uh, you know, if you paid him out for eight years, nine years from now. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if we look back at these long-term contracts that have been signed in free agency lately, they don't look very good. I mean, certainly the Angels have pools on Hamilton that are two shining examples, but I think the Prince Fielder one you could say right now, uh, I don't think Prince Fielder would get claimed on waivers. I think, you know, as good as he is, I don't think any team would pick up the rest of that contract uh, without Detroit financing it. I think if you look at, like, the large contracts that have been signed over the last couple of years, most of them look regrettable. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, let's say I, you've, uh, I think you've more than fulfilled your obligations here today. I just want to ask you one question. Yesterday, uh, yeah, Sunday night, uh, David Appleman um, released the new uh, the Park Factors for 2013. 
And uh, one of the things he, meant, he, he mentioned was that uh, for the stadiums which have had redesigns like Petco, uh, like Safeco recently, uh, you know, we're going one year back. Uh, 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 you know, just you, you're sort of a regressed version of the present season. Uh, here's a question, though, is um, what, have your, what have your sort of been your observations with regard to Safeco at this point? Um, because we know that um, – because I noticed that, uh, separately um, the Mariners are hitting a lot of home runs. I think they've hit the third most home runs in the majors at this point. Yeah, I think Safeco's been interesting. I mean, they moved the fences in pretty significantly. This is not like a – you know, we just pulled in left field five feet. This is a basic redesign of – of every fence from left, the left field corner to right center. They really reconfigured the park. I don't think there's any question it's playing more hitter-friendly for home runs than it has in the past. But my perception overall is that it's still a little pitcher-friendly, uh, which is why I was a little surprised to see our parts, the single-year park sector at 103 for Safeco. Uh, because I think in my estimation, uh, the park is still, you know, it's still a cold-weather city. It still rains a lot. Um, you know, I haven't necessarily seen it as a, a place where offense is really uh, being promoted, it's not killing it like it used to. I mean, mm-hmm. there used to be an offensive graveyard. I think at this point, it's probably neutral or something close to it. Okay. Yeah. So that's what you would expect ultimately for it to sort of even out to? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was looking at some of Adrian Beltre's stats too. Uh, of course, Adrian Beltre yep. appears on your, uh, your trade value series in that, in that 41 to 50 range. And, uh, yeah. he was still, he was actually quite, he was, he was, uh, quite good during his Mariners years, but he's been better since. Yeah, I spent five years trying to convince anyone who would listen in Seattle that Adrian Belcher was not terrible because they thought they were getting a guy who hit 50 home runs and was going to you know, transform their lineup. And what they got was a guy who hit 20 home runs. Uh, but, you know, Belcher was the absolute wrong player for Safeco Field. I mean, I think it was a good contract. It was worth signing uh, because of the other things he did. But to, to put a right-handed pull-power hitter in that park and expect him to hit 40 home runs was uh, ludicrous. Uh, and so, you know, for Belfry, I'm, I'm happy that he was able to escape Safeco and show players, uh, show people that he's still an excellent player. And, you know, it's interesting that I think since leaving Safeco over the last four years, three and a half plus years, uh, Belfry has been, uh, a pretty consistent 140 WRC plus guy in his mid 30s when, in, you know, from 26 to 30, he was like a 90 WRC plus guy. So obviously it's not all park factors. I think there's potentially a mental aspect here. Uh, there's things that we can't understand, but maybe Beltre just got better. Uh, but there's no question that Adrian Beltre and Safefield Field were a terrible match. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's very good. He's very good. He, he is an excellent player, yeah. I mean, just besides the defense, he's, he has a lot of power, yeah. uh, and he, he, has, he doesn't really swing and miss a lot. Adrian Beltre is, uh, besides, he's basically missing walks. If, he, right. if, he, if Adrian Beltre drew walks, he would be uh, not quite Mike Trout, but very close to one of the perfect all-around ball player. Yeah, well, yeah, he's still he's still quite good. And uh, his his war totals for his career, I've noticed, have started getting into uh, what is generally the Hall of Fame consideration range, which is not yeah, something I, that people might know. Yeah, I think, you know, I've written a couple articles in the last couple years that say Adrian Beltre should be a Hall of Famer, uh, and I think he will be. Yeah, but I think it's going to be an interesting case because I think he's going to get in for the wrong reason. Because he started his career so early, came up with the Dodgers when he was 19, and been super durable, uh, played through injuries, played, you know, 155 games every year, he's going to get to 3,000 hits, barring some kind of catastrophic injury. Uh, he's going to get to kind of these milestone numbers to the traditionalists. I'm going to say, well, you know, a great defensive third baseman got 3,000 hits, and we have to put him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's not going to get in for the right reasons, but he's going to get in, and I think he's going to be worthy. All right, yeah. Well, very good. Well, he'll appeal to both crowds. I mean, he's, yeah, he's pretty good. 
Anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, well, thank you, uh, thank you so much, Dave Cameron. Thanks for letting me ramble. Yeah, that's right. And we'll have your uh, trade value series all this week, I suppose. Yes, there will be two posts today and a week. All right. Yeah, that is uh, managing editor Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.